Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the rain that we had yesterday. Thank you for uh, this beautiful creation that you've given us. We pray that we would, whenever we see this creation, that we would think of you as the creator and not think of ourselves as the stewards of it. We pray that we would learn this morning from your word, that we would get a better understanding of who you are, get a better understanding of who Jesus is and the sacrifice he made on our behalf. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you were here last week, you'll remember that uh, we explored the life of Paul up to his conversion. Uh, We talked about his upbringing, his occupation, uh, his devoutness and faithfulness to the Old Testament scriptures, and we remember, we saw that he was considered an intellectual giant who studied at the feet of intellectual giants. The uh, rabbi Gamaliel, who is both regarded as one of the most important uh, rabbis, both in uh, Jewish tradition uh, and by Christians, as uh, being one of the wisest of the rabbis of that time and even uh, is remembered today. Paul himself could have assumed, perhaps, this mantle of, being, of carrying on the tradition of G- Gamaliel, um, but rather than continue along those lines in the rabbinical tradition, again, we, we remember that he was converted and became the ardent proponent of the gospel throughout the world. Uh, this sort of alienated him from all of those political circles that would have elevated him to uh, international prominence at the time. Being a Pharisee, we know that he was very well versed in the law and the prophets and that he believed in the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, but mu- much like Christians today all believe in the second coming uh, of Christ, uh, there's great debate and great difference on, uh, among Christians on how that might look. So in the uh, first century and prior there was great debate among those who believed in the doctrine of the resurrection. They just, you know, they, they, they believed in it. They just didn't know exactly how it was going to look. So the resurrection of Christ, presumably, was not what Paul had in mind in his doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, and he, he rejected the news of that as having anything to do with his understanding of the doctrine of the resurrection. He believed in the resurrection, but when he had heard that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead, he said, no, 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 that's not how the resurrection works. Uh, he probably believed this until he encountered the resurrected Christ himself, and then his eyes were opened and said, aha, yes, that is how the resurrection works. Um, Paul, besides Jesus, is the most central figure of the New Testament. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, of course, 27 of them are about Jesus, um, but 13 of them, unless you count Hebrews, which we'll talk about at a later time, 13 of them are authored by the Apostle Paul. That's nearly half of the New Testament. The book of Acts devotes half of its narrative to the mission of Paul post-conversion. So he's a very important figure of the New Testament. Uh, The work of Christ, which transformed Paul, who was prior to his conversion, the greatest inquisitor and the greatest prosecutor of the Christian faith, the work of Christ that transformed him into the greatest proponent of the Christian faith is, in my opinion, uh, a, a, a miracle in and of itself. And if I may employ the term, it was... Uh, it was a brilliant strategy 
by uh, Christ, by, uh, by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And what I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm using the term strategy, I'm not trying to imply that uh, the Holy Trinity was standing around a map table in a war room trying to anticipate variables uh, of the future and, you know, kind of coming up with different plans, plan A, plan B. What I mean by strategy is that uh, the use of Paul as a general means to achieve victory was, of course, perfect, but there are ways we can understand that in phenomenological terms or in, uh, ter- in uh, terms that we can relate to by our own perception. Paul was, uh, he had all of the, the, the secular credentials to be the uh, greatest missionary of the first century and really probably up until you know, the 21st century uh, as far as the impact on the Christian faith. He had all the secular credentials. He was very well educated. He was well versed in uh, secular philosophies, the Greek philosophies, the Roman philosophies uh, of the day. He also had the uh, Jewish theological credentials, having been brought up at the feet of Gamaliel uh, and studied under the best rabbis of the day. Uh, and he, so he had <clears throat> he was the, had the best of both worlds. He had the background of the Old Testament. He had the uh, background of the uh, secular philosophies of the Roman Empire. Uh, and he had uh, a very good upbringing in all of his education that he could use to preach the gospel to the entire world. Uh, he also had, of course, the spiritual credentials, having been a directly commissioned apostle from Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus. Uh, he was not a disciple of, of Jesus during Christ's earthly ministry. However, he did have that direct commission from Jesus Christ during his conversion on the road to Damascus. Um, the first two credentials, his secular credentials and his theological credentials, uh, are go, go mostly undisputed among uh, philosophers, excuse me, among scholars today. They, they accept that Paul, in his autobiographical statements or in his biographical statements in the, in the Book of Acts, demonstrate a well-educated man and someone who could preach both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. But as that third credential, the spiritual credentials, which you may not, or you may or may not be surprised, uh, has come under radical attack by uh, Christian critics or critics of Christianity, who say that uh, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus uh, was either a uh, a subjective metaphysical experience, or it was a natural phenomenon that was just simply misunderstood, or at worst, Paul used uh, this road to Damascus story as a means of fraud. So there are these critics out there now who will try to explain away Paul's uh, conversion experience on the road to Damascus, again, as either being subjective, as either being uh, some sort of natural phenomenon, or being fraud. John, did you... Really? <laughs> uh, when he found that simple answer, he, he threw it all. But anyway, long story short, Hoffer thought of Paul as a psychiatric case, a psychological. What does the word psychological mean? It's uh, the order of the, the of the soul, yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's what... what that's an interesting point, and keep that in mind as we come to uh, what's on your paper under the unity and diversity portion. Um, that may have something to do with what we talk about there. 
the theory of fraud is not actually a new one. It was as, as old as the New Testament itself with the faction of professing Christians known as the Judaizers claiming that Paul's narrative of his conversion uh, was disseminated with purely selfish motives and the Ebionites claiming that Paul wasn't even a Jew. A man by the name of uh, Epiphanius or Epiphanius, I'm not really sure, uh, he was the Bishop of Salamis, uh, records for us in the 4th century A.D., uh, about the Ebionites. This is what the Ebionites believed about Paul, that he was the son of a Greek mother and father, but that he had gone up to Jerusalem, stayed a while, and desired to marry a daughter of the high priest. He therefore became a proselyte Jew and was circumcised. But since he could still not get that sort of girl, he became angry and wrote against circumcision and the Sabbath and the law. So Paul, <laughs> it was a girl, that, according to the Ebionites, it was, it was a girl that uh, motivated Paul to uh, both become a Jew and to become a Christian. Um, of course, the, this has no basis in historical reality, but I thought it was uh, interesting that Epiphanius would write about uh, such, a, such a belief during that time. Uh, James Tabor, who is a modern-day theologian, uh, self-described theologian, uh, also gives us his view that the book of Acts, which records the conversion of Paul, is fraudulent. And Paul's own record of it in Galatians is simply misunderstood. Uh, he ascribes to the vision hypothesis, which came into popularity with, uh, in the 19th century under the uh, liberal historical critical school, the Tübingen School in Germany, uh, especially under the scholar Ferdinand Christian Bauer, who uh, th this idea rejected supernatural events as having any, me any meaning to us because the they take it as a, as a presupposition that the supernatural can't occur. So anytime we see a record of the supernatural, according to this school of thought, we, have to, we can't take it as meaningful because we understand prima facie that the supernatural can't occur. This is, what they th this is, this is important to their mode of thought, Ferdinand Christian Bauer and James Tabor as well. Um, so James Tabor ascribes to Paul that this supernatural visionary experience uh, must be something else altogether. He rejects that this Christophany or this theophany or this manifestation of Christ on the road to Damascus actually took place. Um, now, in order to do this, Paul, excuse me, James Tabor also uh, rejects nearly half of the Pauline epistles as being authentic. He uh, believes that Paul did not write first. Excuse me, that Paul did not write uh, Titus, Timothy, and Second Thessalonians, um, but rather he only uh, he only wrote First and Second Corinthians, Romans, First Thessalonians, and Philemon, and maybe Philippians. Uh, so likewise, Tabor ascribes to Paul that he must have had a natural. Uh, vision, and maybe it was subjective in his mind, this sort of visionary experience rather than a, uh, an actual objective reality, the supernatural coming down, Christophany, theophany uh, of Christ appearing and manifesting himself for real to the Apostle Paul. They, again, they reject the supernatural up front. It can't take place. That's their presupposition that the supernatural can't take place. So Paul's conversion experience must be fraud, or he must have been mistaken. So 
Tabor is repeating claims made two centuries later, and uh, he discounts all of the study that's done from an orthodox perspective, uh, not only for the authenticity of the Pauline epistles, but for this objective reality of the conversion experience. So going back to Ferdinand Christian Bauer, again from the 19th century, uh, in all of his study, eventually he had to admit he could not get away from the fact that the supernatural was indeed a reality. In fact, he says this, no psychological or dialectical analysis can explore the inner mystery of the act in which God revealed his son in Paul. The sudden transformation of Paul from the most violent adversary of Christianity into its most determined herald was nothing short of a miracle. So Ferdinand Christian Bauer, who again had this presupposition that the supernatural cannot occur, by this simple fact that Paul being the ardent uh, prosecutor of Christianity and turning in a 180 into the most ardent proponent of Christianity was again nothing short of a miracle in itself. He continues, this miracle appears the greater when we remember that in this revulsion of his consciousness, he broke through the barriers of Judaism and rose out of its particularism into the universalism of Christianity. So, Ferdinand Christian Bauer again admits that the, the supernatural can occur. Why is this important? Because once you admit it can occur once, you have to admit it can occur at any other time. And so, the entire premise of the Tubingen School, once you admit that the supernatural can indeed occur one single time, the entire premise is thrown out the window. So James Tabor should take note from uh, Ferdinand Christian Bauer that uh, with a little bit more study, perhaps he will realize that this supernatural is indeed an objective reality rather than just some fraudulent hypothesis posed by first century authors. After Paul's conversion, uh, he went into, back into Damascus, meeting with Ananias so that he may regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, Luke records for us immediately, excuse me, I actually don't have, this might be in Galatians, and immediately something like scales, this is in, this is in uh, Acts, I'm sorry, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And Paul tells us in Galatians, after his conversion experience and going to Ananias, that he went away. Does anyone, anyone know where Paul went after he went to Damascus the first time? Arabia. He went to Arabia. For how long? Three years. Three years. So it's, it's, it's tempting to think of the, the narrative of Paul uh, as being on the road to Damascus, going, getting his eyesight back and being baptized, and then immediately going out into the world and taking it on full force. But that's not exactly how it happened. Paul went into Arabia for three years, he tells us in Galatians, and there he probably meditated on his own experience, prayed on his own experience, and studied uh, what, it, what exactly Christianity was, what the gospel was, and how he could best uh, preach the gospel. So he had three years of preparation in Arabia before he continued his mission unto the world. After that, he went back into Damascus before returning to Jerusalem. But upon his return... He immediately used his position as a regenerated Christian to speak to the audience with which he was most familiar. And who was that? Jews. The Jews, exactly. He went to the synagogue, and he was uh, surely well-known. Again, he was, a, he was an up-and-comer, right? He was surely well-known in the synagogues uh, throughout Palestine, including Damascus. He, it wasn't, uh, Paul was an itinerant. He went all over the place. And so he was probably well-known throughout the land. 
So these Jews in the synagogues, they didn't know necessarily what to do with Paul. They uh, remember him being, the again, the most ardent opponent of Christianity, and now here he is preaching the gospel as truth. You know, what's going through their mind? Isn't this the guy that uh, told us that we should oppose Christianity at all points, and now he's telling us to accept it? Um, they, again, probably didn't know what exactly to do with him up front. Uh, Luke tells us that Paul confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That is to say, Paul had this sort of encyclopedic knowledge of the uh, evidence concerning the coming Christ. Everyone believed that the Christ was coming. Not everyone believed that Jesus was the Christ. But Paul shows these Jews that Jesus was the Christ whom they anticipated. Paul's exhaustive knowledge of the Old Testament was able to prove on their own terms to these Jews who Jesus was and why he was important. Uh, He was able to present the evidence in a sort of dialectical and rational way, which is kind of how the Jews conversed, how the rabbis taught, uh, so that no man among the Jews could disprove what he was saying. He was so good at his arguments, and maybe this is what he was developing for three years, I don't know. But he was so good at his arguments that Luke tells us that no one could disprove his argument that Jesus was the Christ. Nevertheless, they tried to kill him. (laughs) They couldn't couldn't prove him wrong, so let's take care of the problem in a different way. But uh, they did not succeed, of course. But Paul continued to do this in synagogue after synagogue, arguing with the rabbis and demonstrating the proof of Jesus' authority and divinity. Uh, He did so in Jerusalem, both with the devout Jews that lived there, as well as the Hellenized Jews. What did they do? They tried to kill him as well. Uh, He did so with John at Cyprus. He did so at Antioch in Pisidia, and he was reviled, and it was here that Paul warned the Jews in the style of a prophet It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now, it's one thing to uh, be preached to about this this, uh, revelation of the Christ coming in the form of Jesus and maybe being angry about that, but then someone saying, okay, you're not getting it. Therefore, you're, I'm, not, I'm going to take my message elsewhere. The Gentiles are the real chosen people. Now, imagine as a Jew, understanding that you've been the chosen people for uh, generations and generations and maybe have uh, transformed that uh, view of being the elect into this sort of biological reality that just because you're the seed of Abraham means that you're elect. Now you've got a preacher going, uh, telling you you're not the elect, but the Gentiles are. So that would make them even angrier. Right? One could, one could suppose. Uh, the language that Paul uses, he argued uh, with proof so that no Jew could disprove his claims. And then he concludes that they have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. That even though the truth is staring them in the face, they will not accept it as truth and have only themselves to blame. This is kind of his, his uh, beginning, if you remember Romans 1, this is kind of how he starts off, that everyone knows that God exists. Everyone knows that God is. It's staring them in the face, but they just refuse to accept it. Next place that Paul goes is to Iconium, and he preached again. Where did he go? In the synagogues. All right, so after he tells the Jews, I'm going to the Gentiles, he goes into Iconium, but where does he go? 
the synagogue, right. <clears throat> and what did the Jews there try to do? They tried to stone him, right? So <laughs> out of the frying pan into the fire, maybe. Uh, he preached at Lystra, and the Jews from Antioch and Pisidia and Iconium followed Paul to Lystra so they could stone him there. They, he got away from them in Lystra, but they followed him, they chased after him so they could stone him when he went to, uh, when he went to Lystra. Undeterred, uh, Paul, after he actually got stoned there, he recovered from his stoning and went back to Iconium and Antioch. And where did he go? To the synagogues. <laughs> What's wrong with this guy? He keeps going back into... <laughs> He keeps going back into the very place that people are trying to kill him, right? And this, he already said, I'm going to the Gentiles, but he keeps going back to the synagogues. This is where we see Paul continually going in the book of Acts. Then he went uh, to Thessalonica and, as was his custom, quote-unquote, went into the synagogues. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Then the Jews attacked him. <laughs> we see kind of this recurring theme here, right, with the, uh, with the life and mission of Paul. Uh, after that, he went to Berea to preach in the synagogue. But the Jews from Thessalonica followed him to continue their attack on him in Berea. Next, Paul goes to Athens, to the synagogue. Again, his proofs fell on the deaf ears or the obstinate and stubborn ears of the Jews. But in Athens, the intellectual capital of the classical world, there were philosophers of very high repute, very educated men, uh, who recognized Paul's proofs as being sound and valid. And they asked him to remain and explain the gospel which he had proven. So these philosophers in Athens uh, were not just familiar uh, intimately familiar with the uh, pre-Socratic philosophers, the Socratic philosophers, all of these Greek philosophers leading up to the first century, I guarantee you they had an understanding of the Old Testament as well. It was not foreign to them. And so they recognized that the proofs that Paul was using from the Old Testament about the, uh, the anticipated Christ and Jesus coming as the fulfillment of that Christ, these uh, philosophers of high repute, Gentile philosophers, recognized that Paul's arguments were sound and valid, and they wanted to hear more of it. And it is here that we hear the tone of Paul's sermon change. He is no longer addressing a Jewish audience, but he is addressing these Epicureans and these Stoics, and he's speaking with ease with them. He understands their language. He gets them. He understands them, and he's speaking to them on their own terms rather than speaking to the Jews on their own terms. Um, these uh, philosophers were probably not... Uh, intimately familiar with the Old Testament. They may have been aware of it, but they didn't understand uh, all of the ins and outs that Paul did, so he had a lot to explain to them. But they were also, these philosophers were intimately familiar with Roman and Greek philosopher, <coughs> philosophy, so Paul could speak to them on those terms as well. Paul, in speaking to these uh, Gentile philosophers, points out their absurdities and cites their own philosophers and poets to prove his own points. Uh, he begins by identifying in what we call in scientific terms what are called anomalies. The Greeks had an unexplainable gap in their, th in their theology and their philosophy, which they called the unknown God. You remember that? <coughs> Greeks, um, excuse me, Paul points out that this anomaly 
This unknown God, the, the Greek philosophers basically said, whatever we can't figure out, we're going to ascribe to this unknown God and worship him in that and, and all points in, when we don't understand it. Yes? This may not be true at all, but I read somewhere that um, sometime before uh, he gave that sermon, uh, there had been a plague in Athens, and someone had um, prayed to um, Yahweh to lift the plague, and it did lift. Therefore, they put it, uh, but the identity of this God had been lost, you see. So by the time they got around to making a statue to it, yeah. they, they didn't know the name of it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. That's, yeah. That certainly seems within the realm of possibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then somewhere else I read that this was simply sort of a dumping ground for sort of everything else that's left over. Right. That, that's powerful and useful and good and so forth. Yeah, and it could be both. There could I don't see I don't see those stories as being uh, contradictory by any means. There could you know the, the the idea of this unknown God being the you know whatever what we don't know explains everything else uh, is is I think compatible with the idea of uh, the ultimate you know how how well we know as Yahweh, but how they might have understood it to be just that ultimate other thing that cures all all the other th- uh, cures everything else. In this case, the plague. Um, <clears throat> back, let me find my spot again. Uh, Paul points out this anomaly is satisfied, and here we go, is satisfied by the sovereignty of God. This anomaly of the gap that they have is satisfied by uh, the complete sovereignty of God over the universe. He, he says, God, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord, master of all heaven and earth. Paul explains to these uh, Gentile philosophers that being sovereign, God, does not need, God need not live in temples made by man. Quote, as though he uh, needs anything from man, since it is he himself who gives to all mankind life and breath for everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him. And find him. What Paul is saying to these Greek philosophers here is he's, he's going back to the beginning and uh, expounding on the ultimate sovereignty of God that explains everything, not just uh, not just the unknown that uh, that they are praying to in this unknown God, but everything that they do know. God is the sovereign over all creation, over all the laws of the universe, including the laws of logic, which they employ to reason their way towards these false gods. Paul explains to them at the, at the outset that God is the ultimate sovereignty over everything. Again, he has to start at the basics because these Greek philosophers have been uh, for centuries and centuries arguing about what is the ultimate thing, what is the ultimate unifying thing. And uh, the Jews understood this to be Yahweh. Uh, they had a millennia of tradition and uh, theology that understood that Yahweh, the I am that I am, is the fundamental unifying cause of the universe. Greeks and ph- the Greek philosophers, on the other hand, argued vehemently over what this unifying cause or this unifying element was of the universe. If we go back into the pre-Socratic philosophers, we have people like Anaximander and Anaximander. You don't need to remember these names. But Anaximander, Anaximenes, and Heraclitus, all arguing over what this unifying principle was. We have... Uh, I think it's Anaximander is talking about water being the unifying element, uh, is, is the, the substance from which all other things arise. Anaximenes, on the other hand, says that it's fire, 
that, uh, or excuse me, he says that it's air that uh, is the unifying element. Air is everywhere, therefore all substance has to come out from air. Heraclitus, on the other hand, says that fire is the thing which motivates things. It's heat that causes things to move, therefore fire is uh, the unifying element over all things. Still other philosophers would say that it is earth that is the unifying element of all things. And what are these four elements that we have? Earth, wind, fire, and air. You're familiar with these as the four fundamental elements in the, in the ancient world, correct? But they're, they're substances. They're not, there's nothing spiritual. That's, and that's where we come into Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy in which uh, he argues that, well, we have these four elements, but we, we can't argue about which one is the fundamental cause because they are all uh, diverse and they're not, there's no ultimate substance to them. So we have to come up with what's called the quintessential element, which is uh, the quintessence, which is the fifth element. Y'all are familiar maybe with that term. Is it chocolate? <laughs> is it chocolate? <laughs> it might, maybe, maybe Aristotle thought so. I don't know. But the, the point is, is that there was a, a vehement and a fervent and a passionate argument among the Greek and Roman philosophers about what this fundamental unifying cause was of the universe. Yes, John. I was going to say, you know, what comes through kind of clearly in Acts, but certainly true of the ancient world, you know, we think of the ancient world, we think of their monuments, their ruins, it's all nice and dry and perpendicular yeah. and rationalistic. This was a world that was swarming with demons and demon-possessed people. So the idea that there was a personal power somewhere yeah. was not at all foreign no, not at to all. people. Um, but their personal gods were not infinite. Right. They didn't cover. And this is straight out of Francis Schaeffer. You know, they were personal, but they weren't infinite. So Correct. there were all these gaps everywhere. The, even on that level. And they were competing against each other. They were uh, contradictory. They were... Uh, they, had opposing, they, had, they were opposing each other. And even these arguments about the unifying cause. You have fire and water and air and earth all being these fundamental uh, substances of the universe. You're competing uh, theories of... Everything. That's what, the, that's what they were striving for, is the theory of everything. This is, we, not, we should not make the mistake of thinking of this as an historically quaint argument. This argument persists today. All right? and, and our modern uh, philosophers of science are arguing vehemently and fervently pursuing a theory of everything that will explain the competing and contradictory explanations of reality between the theory of general relativity and quantum theory. You don't need to, you don't need to know what each of those is, but understand that quantum theory and the theory, uh, general, theory of general relativity are contradictory explanations of reality, yet they are both used in modern science. Philosophers understand them both to be accurate and correct, but they are contradictory. Uh, quantum theory cannot explain gravity. The theory of relativity cannot explain subparticles. All right, so we have this quest for uh, smaller and smaller substances. We've gone from atoms, which used to be the fundamental element of the universe, right? Now we, have, we went from atoms to uh, protons, neutrons, electrons. From there we went to uh, quarks, from there, we went to leptons, bosons, uh, a whole bunch of ons that are, that are out there. And they're still searching for smaller substances, this unifying substance, element, essence, that brings everything together. Some people call it the string theory. If you want to get really confused, 
like with 10 dimensions. Uh, <laughs> do watch a video on the string theory. Um, but what they're, what they're after, what every philosopher of science is striving for today is this grand unifying theory or the theory of everything. This is their ultimate quest. All right? This is what Stephen Hawking was after his whole life. This is what great philosophers of science have striven for. And if they can come up with it, if they can find something that explains both the theory of general relativity and quantum theory, if they find something that explains all of that, they will, be, uh, they will have found the, the, the golden whatever. I don't, I don't know what the proper metaphor is. So this is not unlike what the Greek philosophers were going through at their time. Uh, perhaps they can learn something, these modern philosophers of science can learn something from what Paul explained to the Greek philosophers about the sovereignty of God, about the eternal nature of God, and how God is himself is necessarily, it is necessarily the case that God as the I am that I am is the unifying element of the entire universe. Paul, had, by explaining this to the philosophers, Paul had turned uh, the, their world upside down. The sovereignty of God is the only unifying element, the eternal uncaused cause, which is neither irrational nor implausible. In fact, it is absolutely necessary for the existence of anything. So through extension, this God demands that his moral, physical, and logical laws be kept, and to break them, to break any of his laws, is to be automatically in reprobation, because as the creator, we have no right to break his laws. This is kind of Paul's general theme, not just to the Greek philosophers, but throughout his epistles uh, to the Gentiles. For a reprobate creature to justify himself is a logical absurdity. We as creatures have no business or even no capability to justify ourselves in relation to the creator who demands perfection on all things. And he has that prerogative. As the creator of all things, he has the prerogative to demand perfection in all things. In fact, it's absolutely necessary for justification. But as a created being, we have no ability to justify ourselves. Again, this is Paul's theme. For it places the unifying or the sovereign force upon the created. If we are able to justify ourselves before the absolute authority of the universe, we make ourselves, we pretend anyway, to make ourselves more powerful than the creator who demands that perfection. If we are able to do it in and of ourselves, that makes us more capable of the creator. So, a redeemer is needed that comes from the sovereign unifying force, this ultimate authority of the universe itself. This is found in the resurrected Christ, the anointed one by God to save man from the necessary consequences of their reprobation. An atonement, the assumption of guilt by a wholly innocent other to suffer the necessary consequences was absolutely necessary uh, for any of creation's salvation in their reprobation. Because we had fallen, it was necessary that a redeemer take the place, uh, take our punishment for us and that's the only way that we could ever be justified is through the work and atonement of someone with absolutely no fall, no reprobation whatsoever. And this, of course, is Christ. <coughs> now, not, if you remember back in when we talked about the, uh, the book of Luke, we talked about the theory of uh, metempsychosis or the transmigration of the soul, which was basically reincarnation. Not every Greek believed this. And certainly not every Greek, Greek believed uh, in the resurrection of the dead. 
And they mocked Paul, these Greek philosophers did, when the, concerning the resurrection of the dead. Uh, notice they mocked him, but they didn't stone him like the Jews did. Uh, but those who uh, were moved by this argument understood the theological implications of a resurrection. That death, if death could not hold the Christ, and this resurrection, which was witnessed by hundreds, uh, if, if this actually happened, this verifies that Jesus' claim and to a title as, uh, as divine or as being the ultimate authority over the universe. It's, uh, it verifies Jesus' claim as the sovereign over all creation. So the Greek philosophers tell Paul, We will hear you again about this. And some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. Uh, the mention of these individuals by name makes me think that uh, Luke's audience understood them to be probably very prominent in these intellectual circles. Uh, the most excellent Theophilus, for example, might be aware of their stature uh, either before or after conversion. Uh, perhaps these uh, two, Damaris and uh, Dionysius, were erudite philosophers themselves and were amazed and, uh, and convinced by the unifying proof of Christianity. So after this watershed moment of Athens, which we kind of centralized around, uh, Paul, where did he go next? The synagogue. <laughs> he went back to the synagogue, this time in Corinth, and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. But when the Jews opposed Jesus, Paul shook out his garments, this is a quote here, shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Where did Paul go next? The synagogue. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's still talking to the Gentiles, don't get me wrong. But we, go, we see him going back to uh, the synagogue in Ephesus, where for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading the Jews about the kingdom of God. But when the Jews became stubborn, he withdrew into a pagan hall and taught there for two years. Um, Paul, but Paul continued his ministry to the Jews. All right, I think you've gotten my point by now that we, we make much of this apostle to the Gentiles. And he certainly was. That was his, his bailiwick, his forte. This is what he was really, really good at that probably none of the other apostles could do. But we don't see him abandoning the Jews at any point during his ministry. He continuously goes back to them and pleads with them pleads with them that, look, you've anticipated the Christ for centuries, for millennia. We know that he is coming, and I'm here to tell you this Christ whom you have prophesied, you believe the prophecies about, has come already, and Jesus is he. He, he. Again, he had one way of speaking to the Jews and another way of speaking to the Gentiles, and he was certainly fluent in both. Uh, Luke makes great pains to show his audience that Paul, despite his own declaration to, the aban to abandon the Jews, continued to have a burden for their salvation as well as the salvation of the Gentiles. After Paul's outburst at Corinth, uh, he received a vision from the Lord saying, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to, har and no one will attack you, to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." And Paul stayed in Corinth right next to the synagogue again for over a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. 
Paul's epistles to the Gentiles uh, stress, again, going back to the sovereignty of God, they stress the sovereignty of God because in order for them, these Gentiles, to understand uh, the idea of Yahweh that the Jews had had for millennia already amidst the sea of diversity. That was their whole problem, is they recognized the sea of diversity in the universe, and they had no grand unifying theory like the Jews did. So Paul, in his epistles, his mission to the Gentiles, he stresses the sovereignty of God up front, and we see this in Romans, especially. This is kind of uh, Paul's summa theologica, his, his uh, systematic theology uh, is in the book of Romans, and he stresses the sovereignty of God up front. Um, but he also stresses the crucifixion of Christ. He stresses the, the ministry of Christ. He stresses the resurrection of Christ. And by going back to the beginning, he's telling these Greek Gentiles, these Roman philosophers, that uh, at the outset, man is in reprobation, and we are in need of a redeemer. The first Adam that was created fell into reprobation and uh, had no hope of redeeming himself and was in need of a redeemer. So Paul's unifying theory for the redemption of mankind is that this new Adam came from the sovereign authority of the universe himself to assume for himself our sins, to die on the cross as an atonement, as a, satisfact- as a satisfactory substitution for the punishment and just punishment of God so that we, through his grace, he had, he had every right to withhold his grace and mercy from us. As the creator of the universe, he has every right to withhold his grace and mercy from us. Nevertheless, through the atonement of Christ, Paul stresses, uh, we have been granted this grace through no merit of our own, and through this grace, we have the opportunity uh, in, this, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to have eternal life and to live throughout eternity glorifying God forever. Paul was, uh, most people assume or accept that Paul was killed around 63 A.D., 64, maybe as late as 67 A.D. Uh, tradition holds that he was beheaded. We don't really know for sure. Uh, but it was probably during or after the great fire of, uh, of Rome in which Nero blamed the Christians. Uh, Paul was beheaded. But nevertheless, uh, his impact upon the Gentile world cannot be underestimated. But one thing I hope that uh, we realize through this timeline today that uh, he never uh, abandoned his passion and his uh, burden for the salvation of the Jews as well. He made it. He took great pains, even at great personal risk, to expose himself, uh, to expose them to the proofs of the Christ whom they anticipated, um, and got stoned for it, threatened to kill him several times, got imprisoned for it, uh, but nevertheless he persisted. So, I have a, a lot of respect for Paul because he never abandoned his, uh, his his the Jews even in his mission to the Gentiles. Yes, Ronnie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we forget that a lot of times about Paul, or it's easy, it's easy just to think of him as the, the apostle to the Gentiles, but he had a... It kind of makes you wonder that uh, in the debate over the authorship of Hebrews, if Paul was indeed the writer, it's no wonder that the style is radically different from his other epistles, uh, because he's writing to a Jewish audience who had a different understanding of the sovereignty of God and could therefore start from a different... So but that's a debate for a different time. Any other questions? Yes. In Acts 9, Paul only hears Christ's voice. 
Ananias has a vision, but it's not an appearance like um, it was in the Gospel of John, where he, Christ was actually visible. Well, there's um, in Acts nine. There's definitely Paul sees something. It's not just a, it's not just a voice. It's not like he's there's nothing else happening. There's this light. blinding light, uh, which is certainly something. <laughs> it's not nothing. It's not only hearing, only hearing. There is certainly something that causes him to uh, to prostrate himself in adoration and subservience. Something like that. I would. I would. That's. I think that's an appropriate comparison. All right, Paul. Would you mind closing us in prayer? Close. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to be able to study, to be able to learn. We thank you for uh, the opportunity to be able to also gather for worship. We ask that you prepare our hearts for worship and bless this time together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.